Thank you all for coming to this afternoon's lecture and welcome. It's my great honor to introduce the Reverend Dr. James Forbes. Dr. Forbes is one of the most inspirational preachers of the church and we are deeply honored to welcome him to Princeton Seminary. He comes at our invitation as one of the many responses that we've been making to our seminary's historical audit on slavery in Princeton Seminary and he will be speaking to that. Dr. Forbes received his bachelor's degree in chemistry from Howard University in Washington. He then went on to earn an MDiv degree from Union Theological Seminary in New York and a Doctor of Ministry from Colgate Rochester Divinity School in Rochester, New York. He is the Senior Pastor Emeritus of Riverside Church in New York City where he served for 18 years. He was the fifth senior minister and the first African-American pastor of this large interdenominational church, renowned for its great commitment to justice. Before coming to Riverside, Dr. Forbes was the Joe R. Engel Professor of Preaching at Union Theological Seminary in New York. Earlier in his career, he also served other parishes. He is the founder and president of the Healing of the Nations Foundation in New York. Its mission is to peace and justice and interfaith cooperation, as well as environmental responsibility. Among his writings are the books, The Holy Spirit in Preaching, which was the prestigious Lyman Beecher Lectures. And more recently, uh, the book entitled Whose Gospel? A Concise Guide to Progressive Protestantism. Dr. Forbes is uh, speaking tonight on empowering the faith community for prophetic witness. Following uh, this presentation this evening, a reception will be held in the main lounge of the campus center. Dr. Forbes, welcome to Princeton Seminary. You blessed us this morning. We're looking forward to your lecture today. Thank you so very much for your warm welcome here. Um, I'm delighted to be here with you. And I want to express gratitude for five o'clock as a time for lecture. <laughs> uh, the sun is still shining and we can see each other's faces and I can sense a little bit about what you are thinking back to what I'm saying, and it's a wonderful time. I like this time for lecture. I would like to say how happy I am to have my wife, Betty, with me. Uh, she's not always able to go, but uh, since I've moved to North Carolina, if and every time I come north, just so I can get a little bit of the northern urban spirit satisfied, I bring her back, so thanks for letting me have Betty. I think you should know that preachers have to pray that God would hold their egos intact, especially if they've been blessed with unusual honor. One of the last doctorates 
honorary doctorates I received was here at Princeton, out in the great lawn. The thing that has made it difficult for me to stay close to the ground is that I received my doctorate, de the honorary doctorate at Princeton, along with Oprah. <laughs> And ever since that, it's just been a little bit hard to <laughs> keep me on the ground. That was a very memorable occasion, and I'm grateful for my relationship. And the last time I was here was the Black Church Studies Program. And uh, Professor Day, who is now here with you, was one of the lecturers at, at that occasion. It was the week following uh, the death of Trayvon Martin. And we gathered as a community and tried to work our way through the various feelings we had in the light of that tragic moment. I want to talk to you tonight, and I feel very comfortable doing so. Um, I want to just be at home with you and be very personal. Thirty years ago, I was invited to be the university chaplain here. President Shapiro had already worked out contract, and I hope the rest of you have as wonderful contracts as he helped to work out for me, I thought, wow, this is going to be wonderful. Good salary, good benefit package, opportunity to live in one of these fine houses here on the Princeton campus, putting aside $25,000 a year so that I would have an annuity at the end of my term of service here. Well, that was a sweetheart deal. However, just as I was getting ready to sign that contract, something happened that gave me pause and altered my direction for the years following. Bill Coffin who was the pastor at the Riverside Church, had decided to go to work for Sane Freeze, the disarmament program, peacekeeping as a passionate part of his ministry. And some of my friends urged me to throw my hat in for the opportunity to pastor the Riverside Church. It was not its tower 26 stories high, nor its endowment, pretty good for a local church, at least $186 million. It was not that. Something had happened in, well, on January 7th, 1984, that five years later, gave me the task of deciding where I thought I might best be able to fulfill the assignment which had been given to me. 
that assignment came St. Paul, Minnesota, where I was serving as the midwinter speaker for the Church of the Covenant. They called and said, we are just a little delayed. We'll be over to the motel to pick you up shortly. And I told them, well, listen, I'm going to stay in my room until you get here. It was so cold. Lord knows it was so cold. <laughs> I stayed in my room, and while I was waiting, a little extra time on my hand, some strange reason impelled me to kneel down beside my bed. And what I said was, Lord, I am running my fool self to death all over the country, preaching everywhere, speaking everywhere. I need some clarity about what you want me to do with my life. And I had an unusual experience, Doris. As I was praying, I was simply punctuating, Lord, Please help me to be clear about what you want me to do with my life. And I heard these words in my spirit. I have heard your prayer, and I am answering your prayer in the form of the cadence of your clap. Well, now, y'all, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. I had heard of speaking in other tongues. I had not heard about the Lord speaking to you in the cadence of a clap. <laughs> so I asked God, what are you saying? And the answer came, the spiritual renewal of the nation is the task to which I have called you. <clears throat> wow, that was a shocker. I thought that those words meant that I was being recruited to help be a world-famous evangelist like Billy Graham. Or, since Billy Graham always was a little bit short with respect to the social justice dimension, I thought, oh no, I am probably going to be a cross between Billy Graham and Martin Luther King Jr. So for a while, after 1984, every decision I made was based on how does this help me fulfill my calling to be engaged in It was when I was about to sign the contract that I tried to do a calculation. Okay, I, I don't think there could be a more beautiful spot than Princeton, but maybe the bully pulpit of the Riverside Church might give me a better opportunity more immediately to engage in activity that might possibly contribute to the spiritual renewal of the nation. I might have been wrong. At least I want to report that when I got to Riverside Church, 
it was not exactly ready for the likes of me. First African-American senior minister of that European-inclined congregation. Although, under Coffin, it had become a congregation that was 60% white and 40% black. But many of the people who were black had come up out of the bottom called Harlem, up to the new Hill Church, Riverside, so that they could leave their blackness behind. It was therefore not exactly the Garden of Eden for me. <laughs> In fact, after I was there for about a month or two, some of the white people in the congregation, so proud that they were liberal enough to invite the first African-American pastor. But after a month or two, they found out, oh my God, he is black. <laughs> I weathered the storm for 18 years and periodically my friends would ask me, has the revival broken out yet? <laughs> when I left in 2007, maybe it was on the way, but it had not yet come, okay? That's why I chose to go there. I want to report to you, by the way, all of this is autobiographical, but it's leading to the reason why I'm here. Thank God I can take my time because I have not been given great wisdom to lay on you as much as an interrogative, which I hope we might share together. It was not until August, August the 8th, 2017, that I think I finally understood what, what that meant. Not a world-famous evangelist combining the evangelistic fervor of a Billy Graham and the social justice advocacy of a modern Luther King, not that. It came in a strange way. I had been invited to Atlanta, Georgia to speak to a thousand Lutheran pastors about what that church could do to overcome its racism. I had prepared my speech. Very interesting. What do you say to people about? What does it actually take to overcome the, uh, the pathology of the racist understanding. How, how, do you, how do you speak to people about what they would really have to do if they wanted to reverse the traditions built upon white supremacy ideology? What would you say? 
So anyway, I prepared as best I could. In my preparation, James Dunn, an Old Testament professor out of Fuller University, evangelical in his more background, had, an, had a commentary on Romans. So somehow Romans became an important part of my preparing because Professor Dunn in his book said that Romans chapter 1 through 11 seemed to have highlighted the difference between those who were nourished under the law over against those who were being proposed to be grafted into the covenant relationship. And he said, interestingly enough, Romans 1, chapter 1 through chapter 11, seemed to have been based on ethnic distinctions. Isn't that interesting? Sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah. This, the, the, the original people of God versus the Gentile world. I thought this was fascinating. Here I'm giving a lecture on what you need to do to overcome racism, and he even characterizes those first 11 chapters as moving between some kind of distinction between the ones who were really the original tree versus those who were being proposed to be engrafted into the covenant family. And by the time he got to chapter 12, he said, but from chapter 12, the conversation is not about who were the original sons and daughters of Abraham, but it was about Christ, a new ethnicity, a, or, or as he said, a non-ethnicity, except to be a part of the body of Christ. And then he said, there is in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I thought, that's good. In fact, in the conference itself, I found myself getting very dramatic that I urge people, those of you who are white, present your white bodies as a living sacrifice Wholly acceptable to God. I said, that means you got to, you got, sometimes I do get a little dramatic in my presentations. <laughs> you got to lay it all out. Here is what my whiteness is. Here is what my whiteness means. Here is what whiteness feels like. And this is how white, this is what whiteness makes you act like. That, 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 that I don't care what your previous ethnicity is, in Christ you're called, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, and don't think that's extraordinary, that's just your reasonable service. And then, be not conformed to this world, 
the way it has shaped itself, the way it has organized itself, the way it has distributed its resources, the way it has organized its neighborhoods, the way it has opened up positions of honor and power for some and denied others, where there are those who have power and privileges and there are those who are underprivileged by virtue of their actual ethnicity. Y'all got to give it all up Present your body as a living sacrifice. Be not conformed to this world. Decide that you no longer want to live by the way the world has described things, the way it has parsed things, the way it has distributed things, giving it up. So anyway, I, 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 I really was really ready for that sermon. I was going <laughs> to lay it all out. But on the 8th of August, I was sleeping on Delta Airlines, and then I had another spiritual experience. This one was where I, my eyes were closed, but there was cascading figures like a combination of chemical symbols, mathematical symbols, flowing very rapidly down in front of me with my eyes closed, and then God spoke to me and said, let me clarify what I meant. <laughs> January 7, 1984. The spiritual renewal that you thought I meant had to do with religion, had to do with getting folks saved, having to do with people coming to the hour of decision, having rescued them from the pit of hell so that they now can walk in newness of life. That's what you thought about. That's not what I had in mind. What I had in mind in your preparing for the lecture, you ran across it, but much too swiftly. What I want you to do is to give yourself to doing something about what you read about back in 1991. <clears throat> God keep track of these things, you know. <laughs> In 1991, a book came out entitled History and Spirit, written by Joel Covell. Anybody ever heard that name? Joel Covell. Nobody much heard it. Nobody read the book, even though the book was funded by the Guggenheim Foundation. In that book, and by the way, I know that at a quarter of six, I'm supposed to stop talking, so I should probably start lecturing soon. <laughs> In that book, Joel Cavell made a very striking distinction between postmodern culture and modern culture and pre-modern culture. He said, 
pre-modern cultures understood that if they were engaged in enterprises that had to do with social, economic, and political reality, that that could not be approached apart from a foundational law, spirituality, that defined its values, its responsibility, its meaning, and its purpose. He said, so natural was that way of thinking that people didn't even much talk about it. It was just taken for granted that you can't build on the ground without a foundation of values and meaning and purpose. He said, but in a postmodern society, having passed through the age of enlightenment where we become somewhat suspicious of things that are underneath the ground. We always want to deal with stuff on the ground that we can measure and quantify. He then went on to say that we are living in a time where most of the problems we lament flow from the absence of a foundation of meaning and purpose and values and accountability and responsibility. He used the phrase despiritualization. He didn't mean anything like a Pentecostal like I would have meant. But I was thinking just to hear the word despiritualization that it had to do with the Holy Ghost. It had to do with Sunday school. It had to do with getting saved. It had to do with uh, the, the unction of the spirit. It had to do with the anointing of the spirit. No, no. It, my friend Joel Caval acknowledged in his introduction that he was not writing as a theologian. He was a psychoanalyst and a philosopher. So he said, I do not write from the standpoint of faith. I do not claim a faith identity. I am Jewish by way of my family background, but I do not participate in any particular religious tradition. And then he defined despiritualization. I think I can quote it pretty close. Despiritualization has to do with the condition when a society loses its vital connection to values, meaning, purpose, its sense of accountability one to the other, its responsibility for the common good, and fundamental aspects of personal, interpersonal, natural, and spiritual relationality. Ain't that a mouthful? But doesn't it describe the malaise that gives rise to the things we lament about the world we're in today? Just think about it. A despiritualized culture is likely to do first one thing and another, likely to vote for one kind of candidate versus the other, likely to be the base of an organization that, that promises to, uh, to, to make one great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you have a society 
that has lost its vital connection to meaning and purpose and values and responsibility and mutual accountability for the common good. You in a society that doesn't much know whether the truth matters or whether it is uh, what you can get away with. And uh, when you live in a society that does not deal with justice as a necessary aspect of what makes for a life of a community, when you live in a culture that no longer has fundamental understandings of personal and interpersonal and psychic and emotional relationality that relates to the natural order that doesn't know anything about environmental hospitality. It all goes back to the big word. I counted the letters in it, 20 words maybe, despiritualization, a big word. That's what's wrong with the nation. That's why we have the government we have. That's why the policies are going in the way that they go. That's why we can have a national uh, mm, display of the criminality that is the heart of much of our political life. That's why we can have a Supreme Court decision that is based on the restraining of the process of examining whether there was criminal behavior or not. That's why politicians don't seem to know what to do. That's why we're waiting for Mueller's report. That's why we, I mean, what can we do? I mean, help. I mean, if we do this, that's going to happen. That, brothers and sisters, that's why after 30 years, God has allowed me to come back to Princeton to raise the question what is it going to take to make progress in regards to re-spiritualization of the culture? I'm not talking about our little churches now. I'm not talking about whether Presbyterians are failing, whether the Methodists are going to be in trouble next week whether the Assemblies of God has the future or the Church of God in Christ, whether it has a bright future. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about saved and sanctified and filled with the Holy Ghost and the mighty burning fire. I'm just talking about the culture itself, the world we live in, the values by which we shape policies, whether it's tax policy or immigration policy or whether it's environmental policy, what is it going to take to re-spiritualize the culture? I sound almost like Jim Cohn when I said that that way. <laughs> He's gone, but here we are. What is it going to take Sabuni? Sabuni's working with me with the Healing of the Nations Foundation. What is it going to take? And, and the answer comes to me. Well, when God gets ready to revitalize that which is dead, God, in times past, has tried to use the church or the faith community. Professors from 
Princeton have made it clear that the religious institutions have at least double responsibility. One is to take care of the pastoral needs of the individuals, but the other is to provide a powerful critique of the culture and to bring prophetic challenge and proposals regarding how the values of the culture are supposed to be shaped. We do pretty good, I think, doing pastoral care in the culture to our members. We don't always do a perfect job of that, but we do pretty good. But it's revealed to me, and you will recognize it right off. We live in a time when churches see themselves as either regular churches with pastoral responsibility, but that, but that prophetic congregations would be considered unusual. They would actually stand out. They are not the norm. Is this an oxymoron, pastoral, not prophetic churches? Can you, can you say that out of your same mouth? Pastoral, but not prophetic churches. How are you going to be a church at all if you do not have the pastoral and the prophetic linked together with the passionate consideration that we fail not God in either of these categories? What would I, pastoral, we understand. Let me say something about prophetic. Having come from Riverside Church, I became a specialist in Dr. King's message to those who were uh, concerned about peace. Let me tell you a little something, and I, I'm keeping my eye on my time. Dr. King, that night, one year to the day, the death a year later, April 4th, 1967, told the people in the congregation at Riverside, clergy and laity concerned, people have been asking me why I find myself committed to fighting against our nation's adventurism in Vietnam. And he then made it clear, I'm not just a preacher. I am a preacher strongly touched by a prophetic impulse. And what he seemed to mean is that I'm here because I serve one 
who loved his enemies so much that he was willing to die for them. I am here because I consider myself a son of a God who says all are mine. I am here because I am touched by a passion to speak up for the vulnerable, for the poor, for the despised, not only in our nation, but around the world. I am here to cry aloud against the fact that our nation is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. I am here because I serve a God who believes that justice threatened anywhere is justice threatened everywhere. I am here because I care about what the God of creation cares about, and I'm concerned that the God of creation con is concerned about what we are doing in Vietnam. That night, he made it very clear that a prophet actually sincerely asked the question, well, what's God's attitude about what we're doing? And what is God's attitude about the way we're shaping our society? And what is God's attitude about the way some of us have become comfortable defrauding the rest of us of the basic necessities of human life? That's prophetic. I want to ask you this question. Since I said my primary purpose is to ask how many churches do you know that really do spend time asking what is God's attitude about the way we live our lives together across race lines, across class lines, across ideological lines? How many churches do you know that act like their primary concern is not how beneficial their identification is for their own uh, uh, advance, but who actually wait and wonder and fast and pray about how does God feel about this, that, or the other. Because I speak of the prophetic, I ask you the question, what is it gonna take to re-spiritualize our culture? It's going to take churches and mosques and synagogues where there has been a renewal of the prophetic impulse. Dr. King says most of our churches are taillights and not headlights. We need to find out what does a seminary need to do to create pastors who go out to lead churches that are both pastoral and prophetic. We know we have some, so I'm not ever into a reductionist mode about all of this or all of that. No, no. What kind of seminary builds a new cadre of leaders who are as solidly engaged in the prophetic critique as they are in trying to be good pastors institutional maintenance being their key, that kind of thing. And then I come to Princeton, and I finally talking. I, I was wondering, why am I here? I'm here because I think that God is concerned deeply concerned about what's going on in this nation. And 
And the reason I'm here is to sort of say, God is so desperate to find dream team members, as I spoke about this morning, that God became excited when Princeton Theological Seminary took a time out to be worried about what God was worried about. Seemed like it must have been strange. It seems like you go, pardon my ebonics, that God must be saying, ain't nobody concerned about what matters to me. Most people in religion are in it for what they can get out of it for themselves. Where are the churches and the seminaries that care about what matters to me? Then, it was revealed, well, God is excited about Princeton Theological Seminary because they did an audit regarding what is especially on God's heart today. Folks, don't you know, my time is coming up now. It's by my time. Don't you know that this is the 50th year following the assassination of Dr. King. And I've told the president, I've been prophesying that God is saying, I care so much about how they killed the dreamer that I have called Dr. King in and said, this is the 50th year since your assassination, and that I am going to go down and dramatize the, my determination to show that you did not shed your blood in vain. And I started prophesying that, but I haven't seen much that looked like the strong arm of God saying, I'm going to change this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about what happened to King. What he died for, I sent him to proclaim. And now I am going to address the issues you preached about. You preached about racism, materialism, and militarism. You call them the triple evils. I'm coming down, and this year, the 50th year of your assassination, I'm going to do something dramatic. I've been preaching that all year since April 4th. And other than Bishop Curry preaching at the royal wedding or the kids at Parkland doing something to help bring about some gun legislation, all, and I went to Memphis on the, on the 4th of April, and now it's almost the 4th of April again, and I have not seen the arm of God reversing the conditions that Dr. King came so to proclaim a new era of justice and equality.
and I'm nervous. So the Lord said, don't be nervous. At Princeton University, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not faking, folks. At Princeton, there are a group of people who have done an audit about slavery, which is always related to economic injustice. There are some people, don't be nervous, Jim. Don't give up. There are some people who are interested in what can we do after we acknowledge that, yes, we were a part of the system, what can we do? Oh, and he said, and besides that, this is the 400th year since Africans were brought to this country. And then it says, so as to help you not be depressed. Just read this, and now I'm getting ready to close. Read this. I, I could not believe it when I read this. Genesis. And this is what the Lord said in Genesis chapter 15. I could not believe that this is what the text said. right now at the sun. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Feels like it's describing the American culture. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. I think the nation is under judgment. That's why we're so confused. That's why we're so depressed. But afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. Can you believe that? Could you believe that the Bible says to me, during this, the 400th year, after 20 some odd, they didn't even have the complete count, 20 odd Negroes landed at Port Comfort off the coast of Hampton, right there. That's how long Black folks have been in this country. And when we got off the boat, Sister Day, they weren't just chattel property. They were human beings getting ready to be enslaved. And they had a song in their heart. I first heard this song at Carnegie Hall when Kathleen Battle sang the point is the song they were singing after they just got off the boat is the same song most of us are still singing. The song was, Lord, how come me here? Lord, how come me here? Lord, how come me here? I wish 
I'd never been born. Black folks over the entire 400 years have had some version of that song. Lord, how come me here? Lord, how come me here? Lord, how come me here? I wish I'd never been born. Now, I can't end on a sour note. White folks, I think that black folks, many of them, are beginning to sense why we bum bum, why we were, why we were herded on the boats, why we were brought over the middle passage. Why, why, why black people, why black people 400 years in this nation? And I think God is saying to me, well, Dr. King told you that part of the reason for your presence with SCLC was to save the soul of the nation. Somehow, Africanic though we were, we had some sense that there was a God that cared about what was happening to us, a God we could fuss at. Elaine Pagel talks about the importance of a God you can fuss at. And we fuss, we've been fussing for 400 years, Lord, something wrong, how, how come this happened to us? And now we think we know, I think, Black people are here because in God's wise providence, God knew that there would be a time of profound despiritualization. And I think that the black presence, without y'all even knowing it, has kept us, kept us, they, I think they, at the hospital, in intensive care. Some black people somehow may be able to be a presenting problematic without which there could be no, no response adequate unless it touches the spirit. You can't deal with 400 years of messing over Negroes by yourself. Only God can show you what to do. And if God shows you what to do and you do it, you will have cosmic companionship in the response to now that we know that we were a part of this, God will show us. But to the black folks, Solving the black problem is just God using the presenting problematic. Because the black problem ain't the big problem. <laughs> the, black, the big problem is that this whole nation is as dead as the bones in the valley of the dry bones. Mm. And the word that I share with you is if America, 
This is what Dr. King told me. If America does not face what it has done to black people and repent for it and then try their best under my guidance to do what they can to repair the damage done, though they can never really do that, until America addresses what it has done to black people, all of the schemes devised to make it great will be frustrated. But if the white people and the black people recognize that I am ready to use them to re-spiritualize in a profound way, that is, to help the nation discover its values again, come up with a mission that's worth a nation striving for, look at accountability, mutuality of responsibility, environmental hospitality, psychic and emotional relationality to both nature, to themselves, and to their gods. So they wanted to know where we're going to have questions and answers. <laughs> what I asked the president to do was to let me be quiet, and you turn to the person next to you and ask, what is it going to take to re-spiritualize the nation? And secondly, what can we do in response to the tragic narrative of slavery? What could we do to start making things right? So I stopped almost at the time I should end. So I'd like to ask you to do this. Would you all take five minutes to talk with somebody about what is it going to take to re-spiritualize our culture? And what is the relationship to how America treats black people to the prospect of re-spiritualization? That's right. That's right. If y'all take five minutes, then at the end, instead of asking me some questions, you can have one or the other. Just say what your question was that you're going to keep on talking back about after I get on my car tomorrow morning and leave here. Because I think, I think, I think, I think, I think God thinks I may have a prospect of remediating grace already at work at Princeton University. God thinks y'all mean business. Talk about